This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. And I said, um, so, Eleanor, has our new approach to church grown on you? She said, no. I said, how about the music? Has that grown on you? No. And I said, but you're giving and you're smiling and you're greeting people and you're praying. And she said, because now my children will come to church. And I look around and I see young people who are coming to know the Jesus Christ who changed my life. Welcome to The Calling. My name is Richard Clark, the online managing editor for Christianity Today. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Lee Kreitcher, senior pastor of Amplify Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the author of For a New Generation, A Practical Guide for Revitalizing Your Church. I'm interested in the idea of church revitalization. In particular, I I was actually probably the most formative church for me, the church I spent the last eight years of my life before I moved here was a revitalized church. And I talk about this some with him in the podcast, but it was a very different experience than I think the kind of church revitalization he's doing. I'm always fascinated by the conversations people have when they start thinking about how to make the church grow, become more accessible, how to make the church more effective at its mission of evangelism, of reaching out to the world. These are not simple questions. They're complex things. The thing we got into most was conversations about how to reach out to a younger generation. I think there are definitely different approaches to this. Um, One thing that came up was just the degree to which churches have traditions that sort of ingrain themselves. And sometimes they're important and sometimes they're arbitrary. I'm, I'm actually, you know, here at, at Wheaton, Illinois, it's a highly Anglican population and I'm a Southern Baptist sort of right in the middle of it. And so I feel the difference there, right? So there, there are churches that are highly traditional that are, operate based on ideas of liturgy and ritual. And then there are churches like Southern Baptist churches, like the one that I attend, that is a lot less that way sort of inherently. But I think the danger for non-liturgical churches is that you still end up with traditions. You still end up with things that you do on a regular basis. And the question is, how intentional are you about those things? How much are you recognizing that you're doing those things for reasons that are important as opposed to like we've always done that. And I I know I grew up in Southern Baptist churches kind of being warned against this typical Southern Baptist. I'm sure it's also a Presbyterian, generally evangelical approach, which is we've never done it that way. And so we're not going to do it that way. And that's kind of like a de facto argument in situations like that. One of the things that was really clear in this interview is that sometimes there are things you do in churches that other churches could do better or that are sort of crowding out the the priorities that should take place in a church. And I think that's that's one of the things I got from this conversation that was really helpful. I wanted to um, mention really quick that we have the new issue of CT coming out. Um, it includes maybe one of my favorite covers of all time. I won't spoil it here, but when you see it, 
It's uh, it's dedicated to Martin Luther and the Reformation. It's about the anniversary of the Reformation. The whole magazine is just kind of great and deep. A lot to chew on in there. Subscribe now and you will receive it in your mailbox. If you go to orderct.com slash the calling, you can subscribe for just $10. It is a must do if you haven't already. Tell your friends, family, your pets who are sentient and able to read. And tell your cab driver or your Uber driver or your Lyft driver. By subscribing to CT Magazine, you'll be supporting thoughtful, essential journalism and helping us to continue to produce episodes of The Calling every week. You are a baseball fan? Uh, Yeah. Being here in Chicago... Yeah, being able to go to the ultimate historical ballpark last uh-huh. night, Wrigley Field, and first time ever to be there. We were able to. We're big Pirates fans. Yeah, my, my wife and I, and so we take our grandchildren all the time to see the Pirates in Pittsburgh. And so to be able to go, and we were right behind the Pirates dugout and watch this thirteen inning marathon game back and forth, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit of Americana yeah. going on in yeah. Chicago. Everybody's crazy right now about the Chicago Cubs. You guys have a Awesome team. Right, yeah. I, I, I feel like last uh, year was a good time to become a Cubs fan. Yes. It was exciting. Lee Kreitzer, you're the author of a new book that's coming out called For a New Generation. When does it come out? Actually, it came out August 2nd. So uh, Oh, it's out. It's available right now. So check it out. It's called For a New Generation, A Practical Guide for Revitalizing Your Church. There's a lot of discussion these days about church revitalization. For sure. And this is definitely a part of that discussion. For sure. (laughs) So we start the podcast every episode with the question, how would you define your calling? You know, I look at my calling probably, and I just turned 62 years old, so I've been around a little bit longer than you, Richard, and probably most of your listeners. But I see my calling in three different ways. One was in my early 20s in planting a church, and I felt called to do that, and then Later in life, around 50, I felt called to go back into full-time ministry, which I had left for a period of time, to revitalize a dying church. And then I think there's a calling that goes beyond what am I specifically supposed to be doing to this sense of responsibility, this calling for the church and to help maybe inspire the church to some degree to not lose touch with the next generation. I think specifically as we look at across the body of Christ, and there are so many um, church leaders that are now saying, well, we're just in this place where we, you know, young people aren't coming to church anymore, and so therefore we need to just kind of get used to the fact that our churches, we're, we're going the way of Europe, where people aren't going to come to church on a weekend anymore, especially young people. No one would say, let's just um, uh, surrender to that idea, but I think many people would be more I think our church's response at one point was just wringing our hands saying, what's wrong with the next generation? Why aren't they coming to church, which is so meaningful to us in in the format in which it is so meaningful to us? And so to me, I think there is a calling that we have on our lives to to make sure, you know, I, I think of Joshua, for instance, who he and his you know his uh, contemporaries lived an amazingly powerful life and going into the promised land and led to a time of great peace and prosperity in Israel but somehow we don't know why but somehow they got disconnected that got disconnected from the next generation and the next generation as a whole turned away from God and 
so do we have a responsibility to pave the way for the next generation or do we just kind of keep doing what we're doing and hope that somebody else will reach them? So I, I do think there's this universal calling on the church to say, you can't let the faith that means so much to you just die as far as as far as reaching your children and grandchildren. So to me, there, there is that kind of universal calling that I feel very much a part of. It's an interesting dichotomy for sure but between the idea of sort of wringing your hands and saying, well, I guess this is the way it is versus like trying to do something to, you know, solve the problem. I think a lot of the conversation, you see this in politics, right, is a lot of the conversation is this idea of culturally we're moving to a place of pluralism. We're moving to a place where people are not cultural Christians anymore. And certainly we're, we, you know, I grew up in the South where all my friends went to church because they were forced to, and our parents went to church because they wanted, because they were expected to, you know, and that's, that's becoming a thing that no longer happens. Would you, would you see that as a positive development? Because a lot of people are framing it that way, right? Like now the church can be the church. Or is this something that, is this sort of what you're talking about? This sort of like downward trending, we're trending downward in terms of church attendance, and we want we want people to want to come to church. There, It is an interesting phenomenon. Pittsburgh would be in the Northeast, which is much closer to what they're experiencing in Europe than in, in the Bible Belt. When we moved to Atlanta, both our daughters were teenagers, and some of their friends' first questions were, what church do you go to? Mm-hmm. Not, do you go to church? Yeah. <laughs> and But in Pittsburgh, nobody would have asked, do you go to church, much less, what church do you go to? That's a personal thing. And it wasn't nearly as culturally ingrained as it is through the South and the Bible Belt. And I do think that many churches in what we would consider the Bible Belt probably are insulated a little bit from the trends that we're seeing um, in the Northeast and the West, and certainly in different parts of the world. And so, yeah, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, the most important thing to know is it is a thing. I mean, it is happening. That idea when I was growing up that you just went to church, period. And my friends all went to church. It was Did a, you grow up in the Northeast? Yeah, I grew up in— And it was, that was a—that you went to church in the Northeast. Yeah, I grew up in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia area, and— yeah. Every one of my friends went to church. It was almost like a social obligation. Okay, yeah. Well, now, just a generation later, no one, you know, no one in that generation feels compelled to go to church. If I go, it's because I want to, and that's that's a pretty dramatic change in a relatively short period of time. So whether it's it's good because the church needs to be the church, or it's bad because people aren't going to church. It is what it is. So I think as church leaders, we need to say, given the the change around us, what are we going to do about it? Um, besides pray. I mean, I don't think it's a matter of prayer or sincerity. I don't think that the church as a whole lacks in a heart for God or a heart for wanting people to know him. So I don't think it's a matter of prayer and sincerity. I think it's a matter of saying, hey, let's deal with the realities that we're surrounded with. For quite a few years, I was out of ministry and was in uh, the world of leadership development and executive coaching with a number of organizations. It is interesting. One of the quotes that Jack Welch from General Electric, who was a great change leader, but he said is when the changes externally, uh, when the rate of change externally exceeds the rate of change internally, the end is near. And I think that that's true for organizations. Uh, the church, to a great degree, as we see churches that are 
um, dying. And it's, to me, it's not so much attendance, but when you look at a church, and when you look at our so many of our churches, and you see, as you saw in the church where I came back to him at age fifty, that that the average age was over fifty, and so when you read about the early church and Paul's writing and he talks about older men and younger men and older women and younger women, he's assuming that the church is multi-generational. Right, yeah. So when we look at a church and it's not multi-generational, I don't care what the income is or even what the attendance is, if you look and it, everything is skewed, I mean, it, it shouldn't be all skewed to 20s and 30s either because it's not as rich. But if it's skewed to 50s, 60s, and 70s, you're saying, you know, basically this church's um, impact on the community is slowly dying. Mm-hmm. And one of these days, the doors are going to close. W- r- say again what your overarching calling would be that sort of encompasses I, Yeah, everything. I think that overarching calling is how can we better connect and stay connected to the next generation with the core message of Christ? With, with, of course, without compromising our beliefs, without compromising our values, but what are the things that we can do as individual churches to better connect and stay connected to the next generation? I just feel this great calling to be a part of my generation saying, you know, going away from a statement, a statement which says, if it was good enough for me, it's good enough for my kids. Right. And shifting from that statement to a question, what will it take? To reach our children and our grandchildren, there's a there's a tension there. I'm well aware of it because I come from a background that is uncomfortable with the sort of things like you're talking about, right? Yes. The the tension between trying to win back the younger generation, but trying to keep the core message at the same time. Those are those are a tension, and yes. I think I think we're all sort of wrestling with whether whether you're like a reform guy who believes in the regulative principle. Right. That's me. Or you're someone who like uh, you know like an Andy Stanley type who's like does what he needs to do yeah. to like get people in the doors and like to appreciate to appreciate what he's trying to say. Uh, everyone in that whole spectrum is trying to balance the tension of you know I want them to listen to the sermon without zoning out. Yes, and to think of it as relevant to their life. And um, over here you're you're having to say well yeah I want to I want to share I want to get people interested but i also want to make sure what i'm telling them is true and like you can't dance around the hard subjects all the time in order in order to do that where do you what where would you draw that line or how do you how do you do you have a way of like concretely telling yourself like no it's too far that's this is the thing we can budge on and these are the things we cannot well i think it starts to me with the apostles creed which is the basis for all christian orthodox thinking when you begin to question the claims of Christ as the Son of God, or, you know, if you say, well, let, let's, because it's more popular to believe that there are many ways to heaven, let's just not overemphasize this idea that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. At that point, you're starting to, you don't have a Christian message anymore, so if your church goes away, it's not going to matter. To me, it's it's far more about programs, ministries, and practices than it is about beliefs. I see churches that are dramatically reaching young people who haven't changed their beliefs at all. Ours is one of them from, you know, for many decades. Um, And others that are changing their beliefs pretty dramatically in order to reach the next generation, many of which are dying quicker than other churches. I don't think it's a matter of of changing beliefs or core values. 
doctrinal statements. It's not a matter of saying, well, we can't embrace the Apostles' Creed anymore because young people don't like that. But are we willing to address our programs, our ministries, and our practices, none of which have anything to do with our beliefs? They're actually more our preferences. It's more our our style. It's more our approach. And, and to me, if young people... Uh, if the next generation rejects the message of Christ, may God have mercy on them. But if they reject the message of Christ because we have assumed that they must accept it within the context of our preferred approach to church, then may God have mercy on us. When was the moment you you became aware of this calling of yours? Well, when I was around 50, I got a call. I was I was a regional vice president at the time for this executive coaching firm. I was living in Atlanta, and I got a call from the church that my wife and I helped to establish way back in the late 70s. And they said, hey, the church is, we just lost our pastor. Was this in Atlanta? The church was in Atlanta? Well, the church was in Pittsburgh. We were living in Atlanta. And uh, there was this calling that said, or, or this call that said, look, the church is dying, or we're having a hard time. And would you consider coming back into full-time ministry? And so I started, had, had to wrestle first with the calling of God specifically. Was Lee Kreitzer supposed to go back into full-time ministry, move back to Pittsburgh, and is this what God was calling me to do? So that's more the personal calling. Once I felt like, yeah, maybe I was supposed to do that. I, and and th- that's really hard to discern. Yeah. The, I never didn't hear a voice from the Lord to say to do it. In fact, when I my first few calls that I got about doing it, I said no. I'm, yeah. I'm I'll pray for you, you know. And I remember the member of the board who called me said, "Well, would you at least pray about coming back into ministry? You were a pastor. The least you could do is pray about it." <laughs> and my thought was. I really didn't want to pray about it because then it opens up that possibility. But once I did, I felt you just wanted to be clear with them, like, no, you don't understand. Like, yeah, not. right. I'm, I'm, Why do you think they were so determined? Well, I think they were desperate because they thought this church, you know, they loved their church as it was, and this church, which at one time was about a th- maybe the the weekend attendance would have been about a thousand people, and uh, all of a sudden now it was under 200 people. And so they were close to either selling their facility, closing their doors, you know, and so th- it was kind of a last-ditch effort would we get this original founding pastor to consider coming oh, back cause, into Oh, because, okay, you were the original yeah. pastor. Got it. And so when I came back, it, they had to take a congregational vote, and I let them know that we'd be, we we have to make some changes because— if we don't change the way we're doing things, because our church was to a great degree stuck in the 80s, actually embracing the things that I had taught them to love. Right. I was about to say, (laughs) this is a really interesting story because it's them saying, we need to do something. We need to change. Get the old guy back in here, like the guy who used to be here to come in and work his magic that he did back in the 80s. That's really interesting. With a preference of doing things as we did them in the 80s. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so you go in and you go, it's your the old familiar face, uh, I'm here, but we can't do what we did in the 80s. Yeah, because we're not living in the 80s anymore. Right. And so our church at that time, and this is what, this is when this whole idea of reaching the next generation became totally real to me, because even though the church was floundering in attendance, we had decreasing attendance, decreasing giving, of course, and couldn't pay our mortgage with a bank and 
had all kinds of other issues. The biggest issue was we got, I stood up there my first weekend or so, and the average age was about my age or older, and I was 50. And I said, this is not how God wants us to be. And that, that may sound judgmental in some ways of our, my own church, because you'd say, well, how do you know God doesn't want it to be that way? Because maybe God wants you to just have a church of older people. And and perhaps God, I do know, I, I talked to a pastor once who felt he was supposed to be, he was supposed to reach the people struggling with addiction in his specific town. And so that's the reflection of his church. Uh, so I do believe that God might be calling a church to a specific demographic that God is specifically calling them to do. But for me, I felt like, uh, as with most churches, God planted us in this area. And so if we're not reaching the people of this area, then there's something wrong. And so I didn't believe that God was saying, you're supposed to reach only the older people of your community. And so as a result of that, I just said, well, we have to find a way to reconnect with the next generation and ideally to stay connected. So it's not just we do this for a few years and then we're back again at the same situation. That's when I felt that calling to say, you know what, we've got to have a multi-generational church. And it wasn't, let's just replace the older people with younger people. It's how do we find a way to make this all come together again? And 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 then I started to get, as we started to be able to do that effectively, I had a lot of other pastors with aging congregations or declining congregations saying, what the heck did you do uh-huh. that all of a sudden you're, you were the fastest dying church in town? What happened? You're reconnecting. And so that's where the book came from. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. To get into hyper-specifics, because people can read the book to get kind of the general principles, but I'm curious, what are some things that you see churches doing now that you just know are relics? They exist because they existed back then, and no one thought to pull them from the program. I mean, for each church, it might be a different list of things that they need to reconsider, because every church has its own um, dynamics, and some of the things that we stop doing uh, are, are things that churches that are really connecting well with the next generation are doing. So okay. there's no, it's not a, like this magic list of things that you do. I was I, really hoping for a magic oh, list. Oh, magic list. Um, <laughs> I do think there's some magic principles, yeah. and maybe magic's the wrong word, but yeah. certain uh, things we have to consider. If there's some things you're going to change, one is to change our mindset. Okay. Because our mindset definitely was, if it was good enough for us, it's good enough for our kids. Sure. Our mindset was also that we we had to be we had such a dwindling number of people we have to be 
obsessed with keeping those people hmm. versus reaching people who weren't there. And this is like, not just churches struggle with this, organizations in general struggle with this, is like the difference between existing audience and potential audience, right? Yeah, I, I mean, exactly. So so we had to have a change of mindset for us, and it, it took, it, it actually was not a, a, a long, long process. Most of the changes that we put into place were put into place within the first two years of when I came back that really have led to the revitalization of our church. But it had to start with that change of mindset. And, wow, I must have spoken about that topic over and over again on a weekend. I got our board of directors to go visit some churches that were reaching the next generation. And a lot of personal conversations, small groups. But ultimately, we started to see more and more people in our church who were saying, yeah, we do have to do something. We can't just sit around and say, like, here, I'll give you an example. I met a steel worker in the 80s, and Pittsburgh is famous for being a great steel capital. The football team is the Pittsburgh Steelers, and so people think of Pittsburgh and steel. Well, this guy was in, his, in the 80s during the recession in the steel industry. He lost his job. He was probably in his early 30s, and I asked him, what are you going to do now that you lost your job? And he said, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to go to back to school. I'm not going to study for a new profession or a new career. My grandfather was a steel worker. My father was a steel worker. And I'm a steel worker. And I will always be a steel worker. And I'm just going to wait for things to come back around. <laughs> well, while he's talking, they're tearing the steel mills down. Right. All up and down the rivers of Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh has become a healthcare and high tech um, center in, in the world. It was never going to come back around. And that's the same way the church is. So the idea that we would, well, let's just pray, pray really hard that the world changes and young people start coming back without us needing to change. And so that's, I think the mindset's the hugest deal, the biggest deal. And until we change that mindset to say, what will it take to reach the next generation? I don't think any other changes are gonna are either gonna come or make a difference. That's interesting because identity is wrapped up in, in this too. If you think about the steel worker, he thought of himself as a steel yeah. worker. He thought of himself as like a blue collar, hardworking, physical guy, physical work guy. Exactly. What's, what else is he gonna? He's not gonna go do Starbucks, you know? Like he can't do that. So and he can't code. <laughs> exactly. So what's he gonna do? What else? He doesn't have any other options. So he 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 thinks like I've just got. I'm done. I am done. And I think a lot of like this is you touch on this in your book, too, is like churches really like this guy when faced with the choice between changing their identity and being done. They all say, well, that's our identity. Like it's seen as immovable. Yes, you're you're exactly right, Richard. And don't get me wrong. Change is ridiculously hard. You know, there's nothing easy about a church, especially the fe the people in the church. For for us, the people who were there loved it the way it was, or they liked it the way it was. That's why they were there. And so th there was no uh, burning platform or this case for change that was coming from the congregation. And it wasn't coming from young people, because it's not like people were out picketing out front, why don't you reach us? The young people had already told us. Um, that we lost touch with them. The way the young people tell you that you know, you've lost touch with them is they leave. Huh. And they left. They don't talk to you first. Yeah, no, they don't talk. And they don't, on their way out, they're not <laughs> sending you notes to the board of directors. They just are gone. So the way you know your church has lost touch with the next generation is they're not there. And so 
For us, we had to get past that idea of we're just going to wait for things to come back around. God is sovereign, so I can't predict that our whole culture is not going to change. But if I had to predict, I would predict that our culture is not going to be changing to become to get back to the place where people just go to church anymore automatically. It's not the cultural center of the of, no. of the country or so, the cities so anymore. We were going to yeah. change or 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 die. Tom Rayner writes a great little book called um, "Autopsy of a Deceased Church," mm-hmm. and he studied a bunch of churches that had ceased to exist. And you know, you know, so some are those buildings are now like bars or nightclubs or restaurants or any number of things. And so he studied a bunch of them, and he said one of the common things is the past was hero. Mm-hmm. People just said, if only things could stay the way they've been. And they said, we will die before we change. And they did. So your story is largely a success story. I'm wondering, though, if there was a moment in the course of in the course of that story where you thought, this isn't working. Like, I, 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 I'm really starting to doubt what we're implementing here. There was, I would say, in the first two years where we were making a lot of change, that about a third of the people who were attending our church found other churches. And they, um, they all had a home in heaven, and they all went to excellent churches just because they resonated more with what that church represented, and it was more like what they preferred. Good people. I wouldn't call them change resistors or anything, just really good people. But they just didn't resonate with the idea of we've got to shift gears in dramatic ways. So when I saw some really good people, like one was a guy who came up and he said, you know what, you're trying to reach young people, but I just want you to know they don't have a checkbook. And if you keep doing this, I'm leaving and my checkbook is going with me. And so those were so They have debit cards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you so just have to get. But the amount in the accounts is not as high as the guys who are leaving. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, <laughs> that point is taking. I'm just saying, you got to add on a website, a place on the website you can tithe. Hey, then you're set. Yes, his point was you're <laughs> losing, and he was one of the biggest givers in the church. And so, those were sobering yeah, moments. Tough. Yeah, you know, and to realize. These aren't bad people leaving. These are good people who are leaving, and they're leaving because of change that I'm proposing or championing, per se. And so that was difficult. I would say that there were times in those first couple years, even though fortunately not everyone left at the same time, and also fortunately others started to come during that same time. But there were times that I thought, are we going to make it? Are we going to make it as a church? But here's what I would have felt. I think if the church had closed its doors, at least we would have said we died trying. So to me, there is some, you know, there, there's some comfort in feeling like you stand before God and say, God, the church closed its doors, but we did everything we could that we felt or, or that we felt we knew to do to try and keep that message alive for a new generation. And so that's why I pro- I slept well at night, even though... I was far from certain that this church was going to turn around. Our church was going to turn around. Yeah. What were the specific things that you remember doing the first few changes that you made over those those years? Yeah. So like, for instance, we said we have to identify what are the essential elements of who we are. And I think in many ways we were missing the essence. We were focusing on so many good things that we were missing the most important things. And so we said, you know, if if our mission, if our vision is to lead as many people as possible 
into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which is what we felt was why we existed, then what are the things that we need to channel all of our energy into? And so we talked about three things, the weekend service, small groups, and children and youth ministry. That's not controversial. You could say, we're going to focus our energy on that. What was controversial is if we're focusing our energy on those things, what are we not going to focus our energy on? So, like, for instance, we stopped our Wednesday night service so that we could put all of our attention on our weekend service. What was your Wednesday? Was it like a prayer service? or? Yeah, it was It was the midweek service, as happens in so many churches. We stopped our Sunday school program so that we could have small groups. And we started to clear out some room in our facility, or, or at least free up some space in our facility, to be able to devote it to some specific children and youth space. Because even though we had uh, 50,000 square feet of building, um, there wasn't one square inch that was devoted just for children and youth. It was all multi-purpose space, and very often the people using it weren't even um, members of our church. They were just in this church meeting in the building, and they were saying, we own this space, and if children or youth ever use it, it yeah. better look exactly the way it looked you know, when, when they're done with it. And so we, we, so we started to um, help other ministries to find new homes and then use the space that was there for our children and youth ministry. So that was painful. Like, for instance, one um, was a food bank. We had a food bank in our church. We found most of the people were traveling from another community to come to get food. Huh. So we found a church in that community that wanted to open a food bank. Right. We transferred the food bank there, support them financially, still do, support them with our volunteers. More people are being served, but it opened up a whole wing for us to have children in youth space. Mm-hmm. But some people left the church over it saying, you don't care about hungry people anymore. Right. And the reality is you're you're allowing another church to do that good work. Yes. So we made sure there was a home for it. But nevertheless, the feeling is, you know, so, so there were people who left over that. I remember there's a pastor who I met as when I was your age, uh, and he was probably in his 60s, and he had a storefront church and had a, probably a dozen people or so, one or two dozen people. And I realized soon why he wasn't going to grow much more because he told me that he brought his dog to church every week and his dog would sit in front of the pulpit and bark and howl during the service. And so uh, he said a visitor came up to him afterwards and said, I really liked what you had to say, Pastor, but I'm not sure if I'd come back because your dog was very distracting. Uh (laughs) And he said, um, he told me quite proudly what his response was to this visitor. He He said, I told her, I love my dog. And if it's between you and my dog, the dog stays. <laughs> and I think we look at that and we say, that's so absurd. Uh-huh. But our church was filled with barking dogs. Yeah. And I think many of our churches are filled with barking dogs. It has nothing to do with our beliefs or anything else. It just, are, these are things that bark, they get our attention, and they distract us from the essence of what we're there for. So often we stop people before they ever get to the finish line, before they ever get to that place where they hear the gospel, because we have so many things that we do as programs, practices, ministries that cloud who we really, the essence of what the church is all about. Did you have someone you were seeking advice from or conversing with about these things you were carrying out this mission? 
Well, I think all of us have to have mentors. I had a, a mentor who is a pastor who had worked through a lot of things similar, who I was able to use as a sounding board. I also went to a lot of churches that, to me, I admired, and I felt, well, they're really effectively reaching the next generation without compromising the essence of the gospel in, in any way from what I could see. That was a lot of learning by experience. But there is no there is no moment except for knowing that you love Christ and he's he died for you and you're going to spend your eternity in heaven. There is no moment when you're in ministry where you say, I am 100% guaranteed that every choice I'm making is correct. You know, to me, I was just saying, here's this whole collection of things that I believe we should either start or stop that will have a better impact in connecting with the next generation uh, in making ourselves a multi-generational church again. I'm not sure what percentage of those things for the things that made the huge, the biggest difference, but I knew that we had to try. In this um, calling of transforming ministries and reaching out to other generations, what would you say is the biggest struggle that you've had? I think when we talk about elevating our standards, which I think is a, a category that everybody needs to look at in the church, no matter what. We looked at things like, I mean, it's simple to look at. We we could look at our website and say, our website was woefully, that's the front door for many churches now. People find you on your website. Anybody who found our website would have said, wow, this looks like my grandmother's parlor. I mean, the front page and everything else. This looks like a church that's probably declining and filled with old people. They would have been right, of course, right, right, <laughs> but, right. but we were trying to change, so we, we had to make that change, so we elevated our standards for what of what we did with our website. That's not nearly as emotional as when we started to elevate our standards with our music, hmm. and personally, it was t- tough to elevate my standards with my preaching and to say, you know what, I had to start to get in- input from our 20-something leaders and say... What do I need to do differently? You know, I would send a message out before I would preach it. I still do. And they'll say, you have to have an example that young people can connect with. Or how about this? And so it's uh, that that's hard to do when I'm saying, wait a second, I'm the boss around here. <laughs> yeah. Um, music was a tough one because when when I talk to people, most people, when, when they talk about the great music in the world, it was when they were in high school and college, you know, and that's the best time. So to me, I'm quite certain that the uh, 60s and early 70s were the ultimate time of great music in America. Right. The music is the soundtrack of our lives. And so the music of our church was perfectly matched to the people attending our church. It was an aging population of people who loved the choruses and the hymns from the 70s and 80s, because that's the soundtrack of their spiritual life. That's it's those it's that music that was being played in church when they were coming to know Christ, and that's the music they wanted to be played until the day they went to be with the Lord. And so, for us to say we need to elevate our standards around music first to to really consider our style of music, but then no matter what style you arrive you end at to say how about the quality of our music? We did auditions for people who were up front who were singing with a microphone in their hand. Up until that time, that was a purely volunteer choice. Yeah. I want to sing, then I get a microphone. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so then people stopped inviting other people to church because they love so-and-so who's up there with a microphone who can't carry a tune. They're fine to live with that, but they're not going to invite their family and friends and coworkers because there's a little bit of embarrassment. It's, it's not what you would call something that would be, you know, when Paul says, you know, you, you, to the Thess- Thessalonians, you love well, but you should excel still more. We, we should aspire to, to, to not just accept what I would consider to be something that's far less than we could mm-hmm. reach. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that every church should aspire to be, you know, like Hillsong in the quality of their music because it's just not realistic. But there's a gap. There's a gap not between what you're doing and what another church is doing, but there's a gap between what you're doing and what you could be doing. And that's the gap that we must be really committed to close. So to me, when we started to try to close the gap of music, you know, in in that area. It can be painful. It was painful. And so each person who auditioned, one question I asked them all, because I sat in on the auditions and I said, what happens if you're not selected to still have a microphone in your hand? And to a person, they said, well, I'm a worshiper. It doesn't matter if I have a microphone in my hand. I'm a worshiper, and I'll still be worshiping in the congregation and helping to be an example of worship to others. To, to my recollection, everyone left the church who wasn't asked to have a microphone in their hand if they had it previously. And so... Wow. So, so you're saying everybody that had had previously been singing that didn't get asked back, they're saying, no, I'm going to be fine either way. And then... Within they a short period of time, they, they were gone. Wow. And some of them ended up on worship teams in other churches right. that didn't have auditions. And the reason is because they felt like, I'm called to do this. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that they woke up one day and said, I hate the idea of reaching young people, and I hate the idea of having quality music in our church, and I'm going to rebel against what God's trying to do. At this, you know, It wasn't that at all. It's, I feel called to sing, and I feel called, if, if, if I didn't, if I'm not accepted on this worship team, I'll find one where I am. That almost has a clarifying effect in terms of like why people belong in certain churches, right? There's, there's sort of no hard feelings. I mean, there's hard feelings, but it's sort of like, it feels like it frees everyone up to go. Okay. Like I'm not at my, like I'm not being best used here. That's clear. And it was probably true beforehand. Like clearly it was because they didn't make the team or whatever. So maybe the, over at this other church, they're actually like having opportunities and being appreciated in ways they hadn't been. It's interesting. As a young pastor, when somebody left the church, I took it very personally. I thought, wow, you know, how could they reject me as their pastor, you know, by leaving? When I came back into ministry, and I know a lot of your, the, your listeners are wrestling with the idea of a calling of God. And some are called to plant churches, and that's amazing. But if for every church we plant, another one dies, are we making a lot of progress? I think we need to be very keenly open to that call to revitalize churches, even though it's a harder path. It really is. But when I felt called to revitalize, be a part of revitalizing the church, uh, I realized that there were good people who weren't going to be able to go along. So I didn't take it personally. I realized many of them were were leaving because they were they were they were so tied to things I taught them to love. When it comes to doing this uh, sort of thing, what would you say is the deepest fear that you have? To be presiding over the the death of our church before its time because we are trying to do too much change. 
it, it helped for us in a way because our church was so close to death. And so I think for other churches, the idea that they would change while they're still healthy, that's mm-hmm. the time to do it. But there would be a fear of saying, wow, could we be hurting a good thing here? Yeah. I remember, for instance, we had two women who were some of our original members of our church. And I mean, back when we had a couple dozen people and they were there for 30 plus years. And one of them had said to me, made it clear, I don't like any of these changes that are happening. And another, a friend of theirs came and said, you know what, if she leaves our church and ends up being buried somewhere else, that would be tragic. So at least postpone any changes till after her death. And she was in her 80s. And I said, actually, we can't do that because the church could die before she does. Uh And she did leave the church. She was buried somewhere else. And if too many people did that, you know, am I really being used by God to bring change when that's what's happening to these beloved long-term members? But we had another member who was a friend of hers who, instead of leaving, stayed, prayed, gave And after a few years, and we had changed the style of our music to a more youthful style, and I came to her after a few years, I figured it was enough time, and I said, so Eleanor, she's in heaven now, but she was in her late 80s by then, and I said, "Um, so Eleanor, has our new approach to church grown on you? She said, no. (laughs) I said, well, you're you're here. I said, how about the music? Has that grown on you? No. And I should have taken the cue. She had taken out earplugs when I asked her this question uh, before yeah. church started. Yeah. And and I said, but you're you're giving and you're attending and you're smiling and you're greeting people and you're praying. She Her legs weren't strong enough to stand up at the door as a greeter, but she would have done. I know she would have done yeah. that. Yeah. And um, she said, oh, that, I said, why are you doing that? And she said, because now my children will come to church and my grandchildren will come to church. And I look around and I see young people, children and grandchildren in our church who are coming to know the Jesus Christ who changed my life. And she said, That's, that means everything to me. And so, well, she, Eleanor, she's one of my heroes. I mean, mm-hmm. that's someone who was willing to adapt her preferences because of her core convictions, because the church changed our preferences but we never changed our core convictions. And as a result, we became multi-generational again. We went from a church of under 200 with the average age over 50 to a church of now about 1,600 or so. I love the fact that we're reaching more people. Don't get me wrong. But what I really love is the fact that our average age is about 35 now, which almost exactly matches the average age of our community. If you could get into a time machine, go back in time, introduce yourself to yourself, what would you say? You know, when I was in my early years of ministry, the church did quite well. It was in the 80s. We got to about 1,000 people. Mm -hmm. But the reason I left ministry is because uh, I had put ministry first, and my relationship with God tended to suffer. I know that sounds crazy for some people who think if you're in full-time ministry, you automatically are going to have a relationship close to God. That's a lie. As someone who spent <laughs> about two years in full-time ministry, no, uh, my, maybe my spiritually worst years ever in my life. Yes, that happened to me, and yeah. just as badly, maybe worse, I let my family commitments and my relationship with my wife 
not be what they were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And we almost, we, we probably could have been divorced. We just had our 40th anniversary, which is awesome. Mm. God healed our marriage, but it was serious enough that I had to leave the ministry. So I would have gone back and said, you know what? Somehow, as important as ministry is, and as important as your calling is, your calling is more is more than just your ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, your calling is about who you are as a man, who you are as a husband, who you are as a dad, who you are as a Christian, a Christ follower. I wouldn't have listened to myself. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> right. I knew everything back then. Uh-huh. But that I would have probably tried to go back now and kick my younger self in the butt a little bit about that. You've been listening to The Calling. Lee Kreicher is the senior pastor of Amplified Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the author of Four Generation. You can follow him on Twitter at at L-E-E-K-R-I-C-H-E-R. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a ton, a whole lot. It helps us. Every time you do it, it's huge, and I appreciate it. The Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.